0: Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio, and now our partner Muse. I'm Patricia Carpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio. Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. And Muse, the amazing brain sensing headband that gives you real feedback on your meditation practice. You can download the Meditation Studio app in the App Store, and we hope you'll check out Muse at choosemuse.com. When you download Meditation Studio, you'll get over 400 original and exclusive meditations by leading experts on everything from sleep, stress, and anxiety to happiness, confidence, and leadership, and much, much more to explore. And if you've got Alexa, ask her to play our eight free meditations. Just say, Alexa, enable Meditation Studio. Today, join Muse co-founder, neuroscientist, Brainiac, and Untangle co-host, Arielle Garten, as she goes inside the head of her amazing guests. Thanks, Patricia.
1: Hello, I'm Arielle. And I'll be your guide as we go inside the head of some of the world's most extraordinary brain scientists, psychologists, meditators, those who are skilled in the mental arts. And we're going to learn both from their cutting edge work and their own human experience how our brains work, how to optimize them, and how to manage the crazy in all of our minds. Today, I have an amazing guest. We're going to get inside the head of the mind bending Mikey Siegel. Mikey is a consciousness hacker. He's also an MIT graduate roboticist, and he seeks to use technology to help us achieve the same states that monks and spiritual gurus have tried to use meditation to achieve for thousands of years. Mikey is an amazing head, a warm, warm heart, and a wonderful friend. So let's do it. Let's get inside the head of Mikey Siegel. Welcome, Mikey.
2: Thank you, Ariel. It's a total pleasure to be here and to be talking with someone that I have such huge respect and admiration for and have admired for doing in such pioneering ways the things that I've been trying to do with my with my life for a long time as well.
1: Oh amazing. Thank you. Well tell us how you started all this. How did you get into this notion of consciousness hacking? Why is this meaningful to you?
2: It really in a way started from from my own my own suffering. I guess a combination of my own suffering and my own curiosity. When I finished graduate school, I had to really come to terms with With something and I'm trying to come up with a snappy name for it, but right now I call it the privileged awakening. (laughs) It's where you have checked off all the things on your list that you thought were supposed to make you happy. And you realize that, that it, it doesn't, um, that there's some, some deeper, more fundamental root, deeper causes, deeper components to happiness. And, and so um, I'm grateful that after graduate school, the thing that I felt the the compulsion towards was uh, meditation. And so I ended up on a yoga ashram for a couple months. And that was my first introduction to meditation. And what I realized was that as a engineer, I had been trying to solve the problem of life by focusing externally, only by trying to set up all the conditions in my life to be just right And thinking that if I were to keep changing things outside of myself, that I would eventually get it right. I would solve the equation. And I realized I had essentially been missing a whole half of the equation, which was my inner world. And the result was feeling disconnected from life, feeling disconnected from other people. And once I discovered this whole sort of internal world and that there were approaches, there were practices, there were techniques, there were human inventions that in some cases had existed for thousands of years that could radically change the way that I feel, I realized this is really, really important. This is really important for me. But then I started to dawn on me that it seemed more and more like the root of almost every major global conflict that we faced was not some weird, random, external thing that was happening or some natural disaster, but it was actually human beings creating all these global problems. And then human beings were creating these external problems largely rooted in internal conflict, in fear, Mm -hmm. in disconnection, in a fundamental sense of separateness. And so it, it started to seem like the only cool thing for me worth working on. The only cool problem worth solving was the problem of how do I help myself and how do I help other human beings connect to ourselves and connect to each other?
1: This is super interesting. Can you explain a little bit more about your engineering mindset and how it helps you solve this problem?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It actually really helps to have, for me, it's actually almost relieving to have an engineering mindset in all of this because there's so much philosophy and so much debate, and and so many um, theories on consciousness and well-being, and what is happiness, and what does it mean to be, and all of these things, and um, and I don't really feel burdened with having to have some conclusive explanation. Um, the engineering approach to this, for me, is about outcome. It's about creating new, novel, modern interventions that can. Deeply and measurably support human well being that can really shift, positively shift our experience.
1: So, can you tell us more about what you've actually been building? What are these experiences? What does a human feel as a result of them or experience?
2: Yeah, um, it's really focusing on human connection. And Hmm. this, interestingly, is not a super common focus in the world of meditation and spirituality. The common approach is sitting on a cushion by yourself and focusing, you know, internally in some way. Um, or even if you're in a group, you're in a group sitting by, your, you know, on a cushion with your eyes closed,
1: not touching one another,
2: you know, it's sort of like the separate thing. It. And that is, that is really useful in certain ways, right? That, that is exists for a reason. It has its place. And there's a lot of aspects of the human experience, which really need that kind of solitude to touch. But what I've come to realize, both from my own experience and now seeing how deeply and consistently the science backs it up, is that the quality of our connections with other human beings is one of the biggest determining factors to our well-being. And that's been shown in the realm of positive psychology again and again and again. And uh, what I have found in my own life is that I'll spend a lot of time by myself sort of digging in and clarifying and purifying and quieting. And then all of a sudden, I'll sit down with like a family member or I'll sit down with a housemate or something. And then I'm triggered in like a few minutes. And you realize that's where the opportunity is. That's where we really get to see ourselves deeply is in relationship. Mm There is a, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the dude's name. Ramdas, he has this great quote. He says, if you think you're enlightened, go home and spend a, a weekend with your parents. <laughs> so what I've begin to discover in my own path are actual relational approaches to transformation. Right? How in relationship we actually get a chance to directly face the places where our identity is stuck,
1: mm-hmm.
2: where we become you know, we call it being reactive. We call it be being triggered. But essentially when we feel that edge inside of us, what we're really being exposed to is where we're clutching for dear life onto some aspect of our identity, yeah. onto something that we, we don't want to let go of or we're afraid of or, or something like that. And so these moments of being triggered are the gift. They're the chance where we, where we get to see that and the chance, uh, the opportunity where vulnerability becomes the key to unlocking that bond that we're in that that limitation that we're in and then i guess bigger picture you know i I see so much of what we struggle with as a humanity being around disconnection and there's an epidemic of loneliness um it's one of the biggest mental health issues that we're facing right now as a society even though we're more connected than we've ever been from a technology perspective and so my focus is how can technology be a tool to support deep and meaningful connection, the kind of connection that nourishes us. And so i have created this, um, group flow technology platform, which can take up to 24 people at a time and connect them to sensors that measure their heart and their breath. And actually now we're working on measuring the brain as well. And we can create real time, group feedback experiences where we turn that data into sound and light and music and we essentially help the group to really see itself to witness itself to feel itself and in some cases to guide the group into a more resonant or synchronized state
1: wow so going back for a moment to this idea of being in relationship and your relationship being the you know the thing that points out your boundaries and your edges and your your difficulties of self uh, sort of sounds like good news for anybody who's in a difficult relationship, which is essentially everybody. You know, as soon as you become wed to somebody, whether it's as a housemaid or as a boyfriend or girlfriend, or as a husband or wife, you begin to recognize the difficulty of coexistence and how in that difficulty through loving coexistence, your faults of which we all have many, you know, tenderly and lovingly Hold as our own faults, our faults become pointed out by the other person. You know, the point, those points when your ego is taking hold of the room, those points when you're not learning a new skill that would be effective for everyone and you're blocking, those points where you get into a fight and you can't let go of the fact that you're wrong. You know, all of these points resonate so deeply to everybody who's been in a relationship. Um, and when we take those moments and we look at them as the opportunity for growth and we look at them as the opportunity. For the other person actually just lovingly pointing out our edge, where we can shift, how we can open up, how we can drop our defenses and in doing so drop a story about ourselves and in doing so come to a realer self or a deeper self that becomes an amazing opportunity where every fight and every point of tension becomes an opportunity for interrelation and self-growth and experience.
2: Mm. Yeah, well put a lot of what we're doing when we're meditating is we're learning how to love ourselves and we're learning how to love reality we're learning how to be love is one one framing on it a sort of a heart centered framing
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um and when we're in relationship with another and we hit those edges it's where we get to see what we're not able to love in that moment and wow. so it's it's only ever an invitation to learn how to love and 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 what I found is what we're getting triggered by is only ever ourselves. So when there's something we can't stand <laughs> in someone, right, they, they, they like, man, they're so selfish or, you know, or, you know, look at them, like just doing whatever they want all the time or, you know, or like, or
1: loading the dishwasher the wrong way, regardless of the fact that I'm told the mother was
2: exactly, you know, whatever <laughs> it is, it's a thing that we, that we can't stand in ourselves. It's a thing that we judge ourselves for. It's a thing ultimately that we can't love in ourselves. Well,
1: can we get a little bit more granular on this? So when you find yourself in a stuck point in a relationship where you're mad about the dishwasher and you don't know what to do about it, or you've had a big fight and you, know, you feel like you're right, what do you then do? What would somebody listening to this then be able to stop and say to themselves, or recognize that would we'll allow that to be a point of transformation rather than a point of frustration?
2: Yeah, I can just share where I'm at on my very evolving journey, and there's two related pointers. One I found is um, when we're when we're struggling. For me, I've never I've never found an exception. There's always something I don't want to feel. <laughs>
1: Pardon me for laughing, but I think I resonate with that. Yep.
2: Right. And I think if we we pay attention, I think we can all resonate. And and that's for me, it's always at the root. It's like you're blaming someone for something because you don't want to have to feel the way that you're responsible. And so by blaming, you can make the other responsible and allows you to look elsewhere. You know, blame being just one, one example of the thousand ways that we do this, right. Or getting, getting lost in your thought or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. So it's like, I don't want to feel wrong or I don't want to feel stupid or I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing. And so.
2: Exactly. Which, and all of those things, feeling wrong, feeling stupid, not knowing what you're doing, all have a deeper emotion and a deeper sensation connected to them. Right. It's, it's that uh, feeling of getting punched in the stomach. It's that feel that sinking feeling, that feeling of being lost, that feeling of being confused. It's a fear. It's a shame, whatever it is, those feelings that we're, we all, you know, it's a sadness, it's an anger, you know, we're all avoiding those deeper feelings, those embodied experiences. And so my first pointer would be just notice what, what feeling are you avoiding and what would it be like in that moment if you, with kindness and, and, and love, welcomed that feeling in like you would welcome an honored guest into your home. Because that feeling is you. There is no feeling that's separate from you. And when we make a feeling bad, we fragment ourselves. And the fragmenting of ourself is suffering. That is the definition of suffering. When we make parts of ourselves separate. And when we welcome lovingly those parts in, those things we don't want to feel, we become more whole. And that means that our experience becomes more like home. We can just rest in it. We're home. There's nothing bad there. And so that's pointer number one. And the pointer number two is very much related. And that is, what's the vulnerable edge in that moment? That moment you're triggered with your partner, that moment you're upset. What's the vulnerable edge? And, and there's a lot of ways that people think about vulnerability or talk about it. For me, vulnerability means in the moment being willing to question the thing that you think is true.
1: Hmm.
2: It means Hmm. um, being willing to directly face that which you're holding on to that you need to be right because the holding on to it is protecting you from feeling something.
1: So the route to being able to exist truly with yourself and with another is to drop your defenses. Now, Dropping one's defenses can be a very difficult thing to do. We have our defenses for a reason. You know, they are our ego defenses. They defend, you know, defend our sense of who we think we are. And they attempt to keep us safe in all of the wrong ways. Yeah. You know, they try to keep us safe by making us do really weird things because we think we're threatened when we're really not. Do you have any good practices for dropping defense?
2: Yeah. And so the there's only one way. And that's just to really love, love it to love the defense, to really see it, to respect it, to know that it's there for a reason, to know that it, that actually that defense has probably been with you since childhood and was developed out of a real need,
1: mm-hmm.
2: a very real need that you had when you were a kid because you needed to cope with some situation that was really difficult and you developed this defense. And there's only one way to relate to that that's actually going to create more wholeness and more peace in your life, which is to actually totally love and respect that as it comes up. Because ultimately, that's all we're doing is we're becoming increasingly identified with the loving, knowing ourselves as the loving itself.
1: Beautiful. So not everybody comes upon loving easily. In my almost decade as a therapist, I would often encourage people to self-love. And it's you know one of the early things that we would do. And I would throw out what should be a really, you know, simple concept. Okay. You know, do you love yourself? And then people get quite uncomfortable. It's like, well, you know, fill yourself up with love. And they'd be like, huh, what are you talking about?
2: Yeah, this, this is a struggle that I can really identify with. Um, And it's a continuing learning journey for me. One of the approaches just in terms of very practical, like not, Mm -hmm. not, not abstract at all. Very, very straightforward kind of approach that has worked for me is um you find something that or someone that you can love so it might be uh, a favorite pet it might be mm-hmm. a person in your life a niece or nephew or a friend and you use them as kind of kindling mm-hmm. to begin to start the fire and you begin to connect with them and really you connect with the sensation. Of love, and I think a lot of times we love in our head, like, "Oh, this person's so great." Let me think of all the ways that they're great. But actually, this is about the feeling, which is sometimes easy to connect within our chest, mm-hmm. um, and and to begin to use them almost like a um, a tool to begin to build and build and build that feeling, and we can use our breath to actually almost inflate that feeling of love by breathing into it and using the breath as a way to expand our heart. And so that's, that's one way to sort of just kickstart to kickstart the process.
1: I'm going to add one more on top of that. Yeah. So imagine somebody you really love and it could be a pet, your sibling, your mom, and you place it in front of you. And then you feel the love towards it. Find the easiest thing to love a puppy and when you start to feel it, you start to feel the sensation of the love and you can give it a feeling, a temperature, a warmth, a color, usually yellow. So now you're feeling a, like sort of yellow vibration between you and that puppy and you amp it up and ramp it up. Then you stick a mirror in between the puppy and yourself. So that yellow warm light that has been radiating to the puppy, you all of a sudden feel pointed back at you and you feel the glow of your own love, the sunshine of your love radiating back on your face or on your heart. And begin to feel that warmth and feel the cycle of it coming out from your heart and then radiating back at you. And in doing so, start to begin to feel sensation of self-love. And over time, you can drop the mirror away and start to rise it in your own heart and in your own chest and inside yourself.
2: That's beautiful. And, and um, yeah, it reminded me of one other practice that has really helped me as well, um, is imagining the perfect mother. which, which I think for some of us is, can be hard. And it's, it's really the mother you, you always wish you had. And I think we all have mothers that have beautiful qualities. And I think we can also all find, you know, limitations with our moms. They're human. And so we get to, to imagine almost like the storybook mother, you know, and, and, and then what that would feel like to be held unconditionally loved by that mother. And to feel the warm embrace of that mother oh. and to, and then to allow ourselves to just rest uh-huh. knowing that we are loved unconditionally and to feel what that feels like. And for me, that's, that's another really beautiful approach because in that sense, we're off the hook, you know, we're not trying to love something, which I think is one really powerful and beautiful practice in this case, we get to just be loved and to just rest in that being loved. And, and ultimately we get to realize that, that that love is always available and that it's a constant light that's shining on us and that, and that we're inseparable from it.
1: Beautiful. Oh, I can feel that now. I can feel like the ease of just resting in somebody else's love being held. And what that sensation of love allows is a sensation of safety So if we're trying to drop our defenses, um, drop being a really shorthand term for skillfully work through and dissolve and transform with, Um, if we're trying to drop our defenses, safety is the thing that is required to allow you to let go of them. You know, the reason that they evolved was a lack of safety and a desire to defend. And when you are in pure love, you are essentially safe. There is no longer need to defend.
2: And it's, in, it's interesting, because um, this can all sound like it's, it's, these are sort of topics that are useful for, for therapy or for, <laughs> you know, people in San Francisco sitting around in a circle holding hands or something like that. And uh, you're probably familiar that Google spent um, millions of dollars doing an extensive research project trying to understand why some teams were so much more effective than other teams. And they had... Um, all these hypotheses that, oh, the teams that are more effective are going to have more senior people or more experienced people or they're going to have, you know, a a broader diversity of skill sets, you know. And it turned out all those hypotheses were wrong. And the number one factor that they found that determined the efficacy of a team was psychological safety. Whoa. Was how comfortable people felt to be themselves to express themselves in the presence of that group. And when that psychological safety was there, those teams could actually be moved from project to project. And they would still be really effective teams, no matter what they were doing, because the psychological safety allowed for a flow, a flexibility, a dynamism, a creative expression that just can't exist when you're actually afraid to to be who you are, when you feel... um, Like emotionally challenged, you just can't really bloom in the way that 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 is in your potential. Amazing. To kind of bring it back to something we were talking about earlier, this is the, the vision for the project I'm working on this, this group flow technology platform is how do you create the most optimal experience of psychological safety and connection in a group of people? And my my sense is is that if we can create tools that can reliably support that quality of experience, then, and again, I'm I'm biased, I I drink the Kool-Aid, but for me, that would be one of the most important technologies that humanity has. Because if we can relate to each other from a place of vulnerability, from a place of openness, from a place of understanding, um, from a place of undefendedness. There is no conflict that we can't overcome. And everything that we're facing as a humanity is ultimately based in conflict. It's based in our inability to deeply understand and relate to each other and to love each other. And so I just imagine what would happen in the UN or what would happen if, uh, you know, the, the leaders of countries or even in, in therapy groups or within companies or whatever, whatever it is, all the in families, all the myriad places in the world where we're blocked from feeling conflict with others. If we could have a tool or tools that could just quickly and deeply bring us into understanding and connection with each other how how would that change the world
1: amazing so can you describe what you have created to begin to add technology to this process what's the experience you built
2: yeah we're we're just scratching the surface we're we're really creating a research platform that can be really flexible and and explore a lot of different modalities but I'll give you an example of one of the things that we do so we might start one of our experiences where we have the 24 people sitting in a circle and we have a, always have a meditation teacher or facilitator guiding the experience. And we might start with a, a heart based meditation where each person is kind of like we were talking about connecting to the feeling of love, but also to their physical heart beating in their body, which is really core to who we are as human beings. And as they're connecting with their heart through headphones, we would slowly fade in the sound of their own heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And for many people, this is the first time they've they've heard their heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And this can be very vulnerable and, and really deeply moving for some people. And so now they're hearing their heartbeat and being guided through this meditation connecting to their heart. And then they're instructed to reach down and on the ground in front of them to very gently... And lovingly pick up this object that's meant to represent their heart which is a a, an object pulsing with light and it's actually pulsing with the beat of their own heart and so now they're holding their heart in their hand and hearing their own heart and then they're instructed to turn to their neighbor and as they're um looking towards their neighbor not making eye contact yet they're um looking now at their neighbor's heart and then um being guided through this thing to on the count of three three two one very slowly it's this is almost like a ceremony right a lot of intention you trade hearts with the person in front of you and so now you're holding the other person's heart they're holding your heart and right when we do that we we crossfade the sound and so now you're hearing their heartbeat you're hearing each other's heartbeat and um and this is pretty intense Right, and when, when very intentionally, we're we're not making even making eye contact yet because the experience can be very vulnerable. And so we're sort of working up, you know, step by step to really give people a chance to to feel the humanity of this other person. And then we and then we bring in the eye contact, and then people are are gazing into each other's eyes while they hear and see each other's heartbeat. And then we make physical contact. Um, we have them, you know, touch hands. And so that's one of probably 30 different types of technology-based practices that we do. We, we just finished just a week ago, a week and a half ago, running a, a three-day meditation retreat at Esalen using this technology where we did all kinds of things from breath synchronization as a group to solo breath meditations. We had a live electronic musician do a music meditation experience where the music meditation had the breath and heartbeat of the group woven into the musical experience as like a live meditation. It was really, really cool. So that's, that's the sort of thing that we're, that we're exploring.
1: It's gorgeous. So you're sitting there in real time, hearing and feeling somebody else's heart. Mm. It's hard to ignore someone else's humanity when you're literally holding their heart in your hands. Yeah. What are the ways that you can then see this move into the real world? There'd be an app on your phone where you could pull it up and see somebody else's heartbeat in real time when you're in an argument with them and in, in that moment feel their humanity? Will we all be rigged up to sensors that will be sharing our biosignals back and forth so that we can tap into one another as we need to?
2: Yeah. The so the the, the short term vision is is to make this thing that I'm doing really robust and really repeatable and to have lots of systems available in the world. That's sort of the, the obvious, you know, kind of the next step uh, of it so that we could show up to any group and create a really profound um, experience. And, and uh, there's a lot of research now showing the efficacy of things like uh, MDMA, for example. We're beginning to see that move into the mainstream research space. And so I would love to have a technological equivalent to some of those powerful chemicals. But beyond that, I'm really interested in how you do this over a distance, right? It's, it's one thing to do it in person and important to do it in person. But right now on platforms such as Facebook or even over Skype, you know, we have this video, but what if there was some way we could augment the experience? Maybe it was, who knows, measuring our brainwaves and then pulsing the screen in some sub-perceptual way that actually helped to create entrainment between us that helped create a sense of empathy. What if we could increase the sense of connection between us by 30 or 40% right now, just through some passive system? If we could do that, then all of a sudden we could make it available to hundreds of millions or billions of people at a time. And really, for me, the vision of this project is where the technology becomes something like a central nervous system. It acts as a sort of a resonator to help bring us, and again, these are sort of new agey terms, to bring us on the same wavelength. You know, and it's interesting because we have these terms like the same wavelength, which scientists sort of cringe at. But when you look at the emerging research using um, uh, tools such as hyperscanning based research where you can actually measure what's happening in multiple people at the same time in areas such as social neuroscience, what we're increasingly finding is that um, there is synchrony neural synchrony and physiological synchrony that shows up between people measurably when they become more connected literally our breath our heart rate variability our pupils our brain waves our skin conductivity all of these things actually synchronize between people so this whole notion of being in sync is actually a physiological phenomenon and what i'm interested in is how do you bring a billion people in sync at the same time, how do you bring them into a recognition of their interdependence and, and their, their fundamental connectivity? And how would that change the planet? How would that change the human species?
1: Beautiful. And for anybody who needs evidence of this syncing, simply have a conversation with your best friend and see how your movements mirror one another. Mm. And it's a standard rapport building technique that we all use totally subconsciously where we start to mirror one another's movements. If I scratch my nose, you'll likely scratch your nose as well. It's going to be hard not to do it. If I yawn, it's going to be hard for you not to yawn. Now that I said the word yawn, I'm going to have to yawn. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Because
1: we're very suggestible human beings. And so we understand already these macro ways in which we start to mirror one another in an effort to build rapport and to build togetherness. And obviously those have less conscious physiological signals that are also mirroring simultaneously as well. So... You know, we talk about this as a kind of on the edge of what people think is super woo-woo, this, you know, hearty, lovey stuff, but you're existing in Silicon Valley. You're existing in the world of, you know, money and innovation and Teslas and, and the harder edges of the world. Can you talk a little bit about how those worlds marry and meet?
2: Yeah. Well, the simplest meeting point is that arguably the most demanded thing on the planet is to feel better. And there are massive, massive, massive industries that are built around people seeking that, wanting to feel better, whether it's uh, alcohol and drug industries, entertainment industries, uh, you know, porn industries, you, you name it, right? And so uh, there's the, for better or worse, the beginning stages of Silicon Valley and other, and other huge industries beginning to recognize, wow, this is a huge market. If we can actually create products that help people to feel better, this isn't just some woo-woo phenomenon. This is like something that people really need. And it's something that actually innovation can help support. And that's a good thing because people are are waking up to that need. Um, it's a dangerous thing because when the desire to support well-being is ultimately driven by profit, and not by the desire to support well-being, um, you get different different outcomes. Different outcomes. Yeah. you start sort of shifting what you're optimizing for because you start perhaps caring about what's the most, what's the deepest, most authentic, uh, most holistic flavor of well-being, versus how can you create a product that people will buy that makes them think that they're going to feel better, and uh, it might be easier to make money by um, selling people the promise that they're going to feel better. And a huge portion of a lot of these markets are not just driven by people's desire to feel better, but I would say to say it a little more harshly, they're driven by people's addiction to distraction. Mm -hmm. We um, so deeply and almost compulsively avoid our own experience and A lot of the products that we've now become hooked on, even addicted to, are products that help us to do that, help us to avoid our own experience.
1: Facebook, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah. Essentially, when you open your phone and you open almost any app, what that app is doing is it's essentially doing something to hold your attention. Right. It's doing something to keep you engaged. It's doing something to entertain you or something like that. And so it's hard it's hard to break into that industry and to provide um, really nourishing technology, to provide technology that actually helps us reconnect with ourselves. It's sort of like looking at the food industry and seeing all of the junk food, all the processed food, all of the food that is essentially not designed to make us healthy, but the food that is designed to actually just sell food. And when your goal is just to sell food, what you do is you hire the best food engineers in the world to design the most tasty addictive foods with the perfect ratio of salt to salty, to sweet, to fat, to all these things. And, um, and it ends up that I think it's a fifth of all deaths in the Western world are diet related, right? So you literally have a food industry that's killing people in massive numbers, right? It's crazy. And so from that perspective, it's hard to sell healthy food. It's hard to compete because what you're competing with is food really designed to cater so deeply to our base addictive impulses, you know, and that's what's happening in the tech industry. And so there's a little bit of a, at least in my world, um, a rising up in Silicon Valley of people that are recognizing this and saying, no, actually we want to design technology where, Human well-being and social good is at the bottom line. It's important to make profit, but we also need to help make people happier and more connected. And that's not secondary. And you have funders. There's literally um, just in my, you know, people that I am running across on a, a, you know, on a regular basis. There's over a billion dollars of funding that I know of in one way or another that is being directed in, you know, towards these causes,
1: yeah, like Tristan Harris's time well spent. If you're familiar with Tristan and his TED Talk.
2: Yeah, Tristan Harris, you have you have an investor, Bo Shao, who just announced a $100 million fund dedicated to elevating consciousness, for example. So there's this beautiful and emerging world out there that's beginning. And then you have the Transformative Technology Conference, which, which I helped co-found and is now being run by uh, Jeffrey Martin and Nicole Bradford, Um, which is an entire industry conference devoted just to these technologies and to this industry. Um, And even the fact that, you know, I I get to teach at Stanford now and have courses focused just on this topic and students just being so fascinated and interested and wanting to build careers around this. There's just a lot of movement, a lot of moving and shaking in this direction. So for me, it's just evidence that we're ready and we're wanting this. And um, my focus is on how do we design technology to be maximally in support of well-being because from my perspective, we we can't as a humanity settle for anything less. Not only is that important, but it's not some some luxury. That is um, the, the baseline for our technology environment, that it be in deep support of the connectivity and the flourishing of humanity. That's the really the ultimate and only reason for technology.
1: You know, technology is the thing that needs to fall into the background so it can quietly and subtly support our human experience rather than be the thing we are obsessively in love with and now mediate, you know, our connection through.
2: Yeah. And, and in the end, technology will be anything we want it to be. It's, it's just a mirror. It's just an expression of our own collective desires and, and right now, what we're mostly looking for is distraction. Um, Facebook sent out a survey. I don't know if I, I wonder if they sent it out to everybody. It kind of showed up on my screen and said, "We really, we really care about you and the world," or something like that. And, and then they and then and then you have five options, and it says, "Is Facebook good for humanity?" <laughs> and you know, and you have the top one being yes, I, I totally agree, and the bottom one being absolutely not. Um, it's, re- you know, really bad for humanity and then everything in the middle, I'm neutral in the middle. And I, and I thought about this for a moment because at first I wanted to be like, no, Facebook sucks because, um, Facebook is connected to so much pain and suffering in the world. I mean, the, the quantity of likes is directly proportional to incidence of depression. I mean, that's real research.
1: Wow. Inverse correlation or direct?
2: Direct correlation for Facebook, for heavy Facebook users. Yeah. The incidence and the strength of depression is directly correlated to how many likes. So the more likes, the more depression.
1: Wow. Is that the more likes that you have or the more likes you give?
2: I think it's the more likes you give, the more likes you click, which I think is probably proportional to just...
1: Time on Facebook, yeah.
2: So I I had this impulse to want to say, well, Facebook's really bad. You know, I'm going to show, I'm going to give it to the man. But I thought about it. And, you know, that's not how I feel. How I feel is that Facebook represents this deep driving need for humanity to be connected. And it just so happens that this is the best we can do right now. Right? And that's the best that a lot of us can do in our lives. A lot of us know a lot of people. We have work relationships and we have people that we pass by and even family members that we're connected to. But how many people do we have in our life with whom we can really be vulnerable? How many people do we have in our life that we feel safe crying in front of and being held and comforted by? How many people do we have in our life that we feel like we can tell our deepest fears to? I know for me, um, five years ago, I would have said zero. I wouldn't even have known what that would have been like to relate to someone in that way. And I was a pretty, like, you know, liberal, open, you know, kind of guy. Um, and so we're just learning. We're learning as 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 a, as as a modern humanity how to connect deeply, and, and Facebook is just a reflection of that. And so I think it's good. It's good for humanity because it's 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 a stepping stone. It's it's part of our journey of using technology to actually create a more deeply connected and deeply open and deeply loving uh, world
1: amazing thank you so much Mikey and thank you for what you're attempting to bring to the world you can learn more about Mikey and his work on consciousness hacking at MikeySiegel.com M-I-K-E-Y S-I-E-G-E-L dot com you can find the show notes and my extremely rich full-length conversation with Mikey including a meditation exercise that he walked me through at the end. You can find those at arielgarten.com, A-R-I-E-L-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. And of course, if you're interested in Muse, you can check out choosemuse.com and use the discount code UNTANGLE1515 to save. Patricia will be back next week with more Untangle. Till then, keep your neurons sparkling.